The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report 2009 Video Archive. Buy your copy today at CorbettReport.com. You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this first day of October, 2011. I'd like to welcome everyone back to The Corbett Report and invite you all, as always, to check into my website, corbettreport.com, where you can find previous episodes of this podcast, as well as articles, interviews, and videos that I've created and conducted over the past four years, and links to other alternative media websites, and also sites like zeropointradio.com, where you can find the online internet radio station that plays this podcast, as well as many other valuable podcasts and radio programs. And now, without further ado, let's get straight into today's episode. Ceausescu's Romania was grim. His centralized agriculture policy was a major failure. Fifteen years ago, Ceausescu attacked small peasant production in favor of big collective farms. But though peasant-owned farms comprised only 12% of arable land, they produced around half the country's milk, meat, fruit and vegetables. Severe food shortages inevitably resulted, aggravated by Ceausescu's policy of balancing the books by exporting food. But on paper, Ceausescu's agriculture policy looked magnificent. He falsified the per-production figures, greatly magnifying them. Collective farm heads were interrogated and imprisoned for refusing to falsify the figures. Almost all urban living is in high-rise apartment blocks. Surprisingly, people were free to buy their own. Three years ago, Ceausescu delivered a bombshell to all home buyers by decreeing a 20% increase in the price, making a nonsense of existing legal contracts. Inside, living conditions could be intolerable. Electricity was severely rationed, often cut off entirely for winter months. Cars were common enough, but you waited up to seven years to own one of these Dasha models. Sunday driving was permitted only every second week. Petrol was rationed to six gallons a month. In recent times, this dropped to about two gallons. To keep on the road, taxis carried monstrous gas cylinders on top. Efficient and cheap public tramways were in place. People had little difficulty traveling within towns. But towns like Timisoara were designated closed people couldn't move house out of them. Contact with foreigners was made risky and rare. Romanians had to report such conversations to the police. Public scenes like this, open discussion with a foreign journalist, were impossible. Permission was required for an international phone call. The content had to be reported. To make a similar call within three months, there was a surcharge of 500 lei, about a week's salary. Ceausescu's social and moral laws were pernicious. A married woman was required to have children or face monthly fines. Contraception was illegal. 
Married women had compulsory monthly pregnancy tests. If a woman miscarried, she faced interrogation from the Securitate, demanding to know if she deliberately aborted. A grotesque result of this policy was large numbers of unwanted babies ending up in orphanages like this. Timishwara alone had 500 orphans. Doctors here said these children were seriously impaired emotionally and intellectually due to lack of staff. Yet the law made it easy to put children in orphanages and extremely difficult to adopt them. Welcome to episode 202 of the Corbett Report, How to Overthrow a Dictator. In December of 1989, as if by a miracle, the yoke of Ceausescu's communist oppression in Romania was thrown off in a spontaneous people's uprising. And it all started in the unlikely provincial capital of Timisoara. It all began on December the 15th, 1989, with demonstrations in the western city of Timisoara. The protesters were trying to protect a local ethnic Hungarian dissident priest, Laszlo Turkish, from harassment and eviction by Ceausescu's secret police, the Securitate. The crowd increased to some thousand in number and uh, uh, then came out the, <clears throat> the forces of the state and they tried to dismiss us, to, uh, <clears throat> to spread the crowd. But they did not succeed. Uh, the peaceful uh, uh, opposition of the believers uh, became a decided uh, uh, demonstration against communism, against Ceausescu. Demonstrations continued, growing in size over the following days. Claudio Yordash remembers how he and his friends broke through the police cordons to this balcony in the city's opera house, the place where the revolution began. The 20th of December left a bloody stain on Timisoara's snow. Dozens of citizens were shot, hundreds wounded, thousands were arrested and put in city prisons. There were crowds of people. The city was raging. I could see how workers were forming groups and heading towards the city center. Initial reports suggested many hundreds had been killed. These figures later appeared exaggerated. But to this day, there is still no independent confirmation of the number of dead. The protests quickly spread to other Romanian cities, including Bucharest. Dear friends and comrades, citizens of Bucharest, capital of socialist Romania. December 21st, 1989. This was the last time Ceausescu ever addressed his nation. He was seeking to restore his own authority after bloody events in Timisoara, but his plan went terribly wrong. That night, street battles broke out in Bucharest between demonstrators and pro-Ceausescu forces who failed to contain the revolt. And with angry crowds storming Ceausescu's offices the next day, he and his wife, Yelena, had to flee by helicopter, only to be seized outside the city 
and execute it in three days' time. And so it was that the people of Romania threw off the yoke of their oppression, overturned their dictator, and lived ever after in perpetual peace, harmony, and prosperity. Well, of course, not really. There is a sense in which the narrative of the people spontaneously uprising and taking the power back from the dictator that had been oppressing them is not quite true. In Timisoara, the turning point came when the army joined forces with the crowd. Senior officers seized leadership from the balcony. This was the real moment of the revolution, proof that the army had turned against Ceausescu. Significantly, this was two days before Ceausescu turned tail at the mass rally in Bucharest. By that stage, the army generals must surely have already decided that Ceausescu had to go, and which new leadership they would support. Not only was the army crucial to the success of the revolution against Ceausescu, but it is now vital for the stability of the new regime. Here at Timisoara's army headquarters, armed security outside is at an unprecedented level. They are determined to repel any threat against the new order. Do you fully support the revolution? I want to, uh, to be very precise about uh, uh, the fact that the revolution was uh, achieved not by the army but by the people, by the youth, and uh, we only are here to protect what they have gained, and we are decided to, to do it and to make uh, everybody live in peace and uh, express their own sincere feelings. Do you regret that the Communist Party has lost much or most of its power? I am happy to, uh, to be now here and to tell you that uh, the Communists, uh, meaning Ceausists, uh, are not uh, any longer uh, the power uh, leading uh, in the country. So you are happy that the Communist Party has lost most of its power? Yes, uh, myself, and not only myself, but all the officers and uh, everybody working in the army are happy that uh, this has happened. And uh, we are glad uh, that uh, this uh, tyrant has been thrown away. Ceausescu downgraded the army in favor of his own elite securitate. Top-ranking officers despised him. He abolished their titles, making them his personal appointees. They were ripe to ditch him. Perhaps to really understand the deliciousness of the irony of that clip, you have to actually watch the video from whence that audio was extracted and actually see Major General Popescu sitting up there in his full army military regalia talking about how he was so glad that the people overthrew this dictator and how the, the military is just there to support them. And I trust when you do see that clip for yourself and you do appreciate the irony, you will come to understand for yourself a very simple truth about revolution, namely this, that it is in fact very easy to overthrow a dictator, but it is almost impossible to topple the power structure through which that dictator operates. 
A dictator ultimately is nothing more than a focal point for power in a society. And while that particular person can hang on to power through a series of alliances and agreements, both explicit and implicit, both from within his own country and outside of that country, the fall of that particular dictator does not mean the fall of the power structure. All of these are important points to take on board, especially now as we are living through the aftermath of the Arab Spring, which overthrew some of the dictators in the Middle East. Well, what does that really mean, and what really happened there? Because it seems to me that all of this seems to be following the same script. Listen to that crowd. That's what they've been waiting for. Hosni Mubarak has gone. Today, a revolution is what we witnessed, a long-ruling dictator driven from power and a long-oppressed people celebrating still in the streets in that square, waving their country's flags, honking horns, tasting freedom for the first time. The Egyptian people are demanding democracy. Whether they get it, they are demanding it. Noam, welcome to Democracy Now! Your analysis of what's happening now in Egypt and what it means for the Middle East. Well... First of all, what's what's happening is uh, absolutely spectacular, right? The courage and determination and uh, commitment of the demonstrators is uh, remarkable. And uh, whatever happens, that's uh, these are moments that won't be forgotten and are sure to have uh, long-term consequences. As you can see, Tahrir Square is still packed with people celebrating what has transpired in their country. Elizabeth Palmer in Cairo has been covering this uprising from the very beginning. Liz, you know, I thought it was interesting that the president just described the military as a caretaker to the state and, and basically said it will have to ensure a tra uh, transition to democracy, a clear path to free and fair elections. Who exactly is in charge right now, and how long is that likely to, uh, to last? And I want you to listen to a piece of a conversation. I had a fascinating conversation with Michael Hayden, the former CIA director and a retired general, of course. He was talking about the times he had been in the room with Hosni Mubarak, talking about the importance of democracy and human rights. He didn't understand what we're telling him. I think that's the way Mubarak looked at us when we were talking to him about these things, that we were, we, were, we were actually slipping into this, you know, kind of admirable but fundamentally simplistic American view of things and that we, we, we know better. And, and, and that's, that's kind of the attitude that he had. If that's the kind of attitude Hosni Mubarak had, my question on this day is, what about the new military rulers of Egypt who are most likely in the room when those conversations take place? Do we have any reason to believe they are different, that they will actually embrace democracy? No. Fundamentally, John, it's a very good question, and the answer is no. In fact, you could make the case that the military are actually even less inclined to do that. The military have made a series of statements guaranteeing a proper transition of power to a civilian government. But there have been few indications about when this will happen, or even how. We don't want any violence. We want this to, uh, the, the transformation to go smoothly and peacefully. And we want uh, uh, to see that uh, uh, their words would be met because they promised we will have a transformation for democracy. So I'm, I'm still waiting for 
saying uh, if they really mean it, but they have been promising so far, and we'll see. Well, the jailing of at least 7,000 people by Egypt's military rulers will be reviewed by the nation's interim leaders. Amid allegations of torture and abuse, the behavior of the army since taking over from ousted Hosni Mubarak is causing anger amongst those who took part in the revolution. Many are skeptical whether the generals are able or even willing to bring about the democratic changes so many died for. RT's Maria Fanoshna reports. Post-Tahrir Egypt never sleeps. The 18-day uprising that ousted President Mubarak has woken up the whole nation. This has become a common scene here. And this, too. Amnesty International estimates at least 840 people were killed and more than 6,000 wounded during the protest that forced the tyrant to step down. But even in a Mubarak-free country, there is room for fear and frustration. Rada's brother was among 15 young men killed in the violent religious strife that hit Cairo just weeks after the revolution. Egyptian Christians and Muslims clashed following reports that a young Christian woman was kidnapped and held in a Coptic church after she married a Muslim and converted to Islam. But even though he was a Christian Coptic, it wasn't a Muslim that killed Reda's brother. An army sniper shot my brother dead. The bullet went through his forehead and it came out on the other side. I saw it. No one here has a weapon like this. Only soldiers do. It's hard to grasp what happened. Reda blames the army for taking the life of his younger brother and the revolution for giving the army so much power. We expected the army to intervene, to protect people, to stop violence, but instead they started to kill people themselves. We didn't expect that at all. The people of Egypt didn't expect many things. They didn't expect the economy to collapse. They didn't imagine the path to a free and democratic society would be such a bloody and painful one. They just wanted to free from dictatorship and didn't expect at all to find themselves under yet another one, a military one. The power in Egypt now, since Mubarak is out, rests firmly in the hands of the military chiefs of staff. Uh, they were sitting literally in the Pentagon war room when the Twitter revolution started. They are running the show. There has been no displacement of that military power. But uh, this is a Washington-installed, uh, as I call it in my book, Full Spectrum Dominance, totalitarian democracy. Hmm, the narrative of a spontaneous people's uprising? Check. Breathless Western media coverage about how this will transform society forever and how everyone is perfectly happy now that the dictator has been overthrown? Check. And a military regime that has been ruling from behind the scenes all along, still in power? Check. So really, what do we have in Egypt? Well, again, it looks nothing more nor less than a military putsch of a certain kind. And again, we'll have to see how things play out. But really, does this benefit the average man or woman in Cairo the way that they thought that it was going to? Well, probably not. And once again, we see how revolution and the idea of revolution, well, maybe it's not what we've been taught to believe it is. And once again, I'm not saying it's a bad thing to overthrow dictators or to get rid of Mubarak or to get rid of Ceausescu. Of course, it is self-evidently a good thing, but it is always, always a question of what we are left with afterwards and how we structure our society in the power vacuum that is left in the wake of that dictator.
And so it seems that the template of the Arab Spring that we've been given for our own austerity protests and the like that are now taking shape in Europe and North America have really been nothing more than a false template designed to mislead us, a point that I raised with Richard Heathen, a public access TV host in my home and native land of Canada, in July of this year. I'd like to start off by talking about Egypt. Uh, what are your thoughts of uh, Alberde? He uh, just kind of came out of nowhere. That's right, yeah. Alberde was, um, he didn't exactly come out of nowhere. I mean, he's obviously been on the international scene for quite a while, but it, it certainly uh, was, uh, from an Egyptian perspective, he did seem to come out of nowhere. He's been sort of more of an international figure for quite a while and uh, involved with uh, UN uh, weapons inspections and that kind of thing. And yes, from an Egyptian perspective, I think he hasn't been involved in the politics of Egypt. And to suddenly appear as this presidential candidate was suspicious, especially given his ties to numerous uh, globalist institutions and organizations and backers. So that was, uh, that was uh, quite suspicious and I think maybe it exposed the agenda a little bit regarding what was really happening in the Egyptian situation because although the narrative is that this was just a spontaneous people's uprising, of course uh, the, the overall picture seems to be painted in quite a different direction and uh, it's just another example of uh, Western interventionism um, being obscured in corporate controlled and establishment media that refuses to report on those things that are problematic to the official narrative and that continues to play out even today because of course there was an intense amount of media coverage of the Egyptian uprisings as they were happening but now suddenly the of course the the uh, interest has shifted and no one's covering what's happening in Egypt anymore and that's because of course now that the elections are shaping up it looks like the um, Muslim Brotherhood is going to be playing a big role in this. So this idea that this was all for liberation and democracy, so, you know, isn't exactly playing out the way it was painted. And I think they, uh, they run the risk of exposing that fact if they actually continue covering the subject, which is why we don't hear about it anymore. Well, the reason why I bring up uh, Albert is he, he seemed to just, he, didn't he, did he not just arrive in Egypt not long before the, uh, the revolution began? I believe that's correct, yes. Um, uh, very shortly before, basically call it saying that, uh, that Egypt needed a revolution, needed to get rid of Mubarak, and then suddenly it was provided. So it did seem that the, uh, it was being paved, the path was being paved for him. Well, I want to get your thoughts on something uh, Henry Kissinger said in an interview with Bloomberg. Well, like he, he of course, he said the, this is the first act of the first scene is about to be played out. But there's another comment in that interview that I, I don't think has gotten enough uh, a play. He basically said something to the the the, the base, said something to the effect of basically, well, I know Mubar, or excuse me, I know Alberti. He just kind of seems like this guy that comes in the beginning of a revolution and just, you know, is a transitionary figure and then, then just disappears at the end of it. Isn't that a strange remark? It's like, yeah, like we all know that guy who <laughs> just goes at the beginning of a revolution, you know, is a transitionary figure and disappears. You're like, tell me you haven't been out drinking a hundred times with that guy. <laughs> mm, yeah, suspicious, isn't it? No, that, that is a, an interesting remark, isn't it? Really, what kind of historical personages are we talking about with those kind of guys? And, and clearly, if yeah. there are those kinds of people that are operating in revolutions, they're the type of people who are, who are sent in there to, to foment things by the people who are really fomenting the revolutions, isn't it? I mean, it's people who come in and stir things up. So, so you might think about uh, historical revolutions and how they've played out and how they always seem to play out in the hands of the people who want to centralize power more in the hands of uh, fewer people. And, and even in the revolutions that are done in the name of democracy or whatever, I mean, you look at the French Revolution and the way that played out and you had um, uh, Robespierre taking over in the reign of terror and starting to you know chop 
people's heads off by the hundreds or thousands and doing it in the name of democracy, saying it was the tyranny was the liberation of democracy or whatever ridiculous quotes he was uh, he was using to try to justify it. And it, it, it happens time and again throughout history that the no matter what ideals are used in these types of revolutions, the revolutionary fervor can be stirred up and the masses can get behind these horrible, bloody events. And unfortunately, that that power, that energy can often be redirected back against the people who even started the revolution in the first place. And people who are wise to history and know that fact can manipulate that fact for their own ends and can use revolutions to, to really change and reorder societies, which is what we are seeing very, very definitely, I have no doubt, in this Arab Spring and in the color revolutions that preceded it. So then where does all of this leave us? If really the Arab Spring is not what it was cracked up to be, and all of these revolutions in some way or another are really just one form of dictatorship taking over from another, then what is the point of revolution at all? Is there a point to what we're doing here? Or, to put it another way, what is the meaning of revolution? Well, that is a very, very important topic, but one that we can't possibly hope to really cover in any detail here. So instead, let's try to turn this in a positive direction, because I think that there is something positive that we can take out of the Romanian example and the Egyptian example, and that is that the answer to the question of how to overthrow a dictator is in fact remarkably simple. As has been proven time and time again, the overthrow of a dictatorship can be carried out when, firstly, the problem can be identified, and secondly, a large enough section of the public can be motivated to actually do something about that problem. Now that answer is remarkably simple, and in fact so simple that most people will reject it, because they want some sort of epic battle. They want the idea of some struggle that's going to solve all of their problems once and for all, and that, to them, is what revolution is about. And until they realize that revolution really is something that fundamentally takes place in consciousness and not on the battlefield, well, I think they will forever be misled down paths that will never lead to true freedom or enlightenment. So if the Arab Spring-style revolution is in fact a false template designed to mislead us, what is a template that can actually lead us towards where we want to be? Well, for that answer, I'd like to turn to a very important article from Tony Cartolucci of LandDestroyer.blogspot.com, who wrote, The Founding Fathers Didn't Drink British Tea, The Lost Key to Real Revolution, on the 8th of February 2011. And I would once again want to wholeheartedly commend Land Destroyer as an excellent source of information and also solutions on a variety of subjects. But of course, Tony Cardellucci has been doing such incredible yeoman work on decoding the Arab Spring and what it has really meant. So I will leave you to, to explore landdestroyer.blogspot.com on your own, but let's read through this very important article about how to achieve real revolution. Quote, Yes, things are bad, but what can we do? Intolerable acts drove colonial men subjected to the sting of tyranny into action over two centuries ago. Before the great battles of the American Revolution took place and the victory that followed, the Founding Fathers took it upon themselves to declare their independence not only by writ, but also by action. Our Founding Fathers ceased the import of British goods. They created their own monetary system. They assembled their own militias. And most importantly, they formed their own government based upon their own values, not King George's self-interest. This truly measurable independence turned out to be the key for their, to their success. For independence is freedom, and freedom from tyranny is victory. 
The battle they fought was not one to free themselves. Instead, it was fought to defend the freedom from the British system they had already achieved. This is perhaps the most overlooked lesson we fail to understand today. We are faced with a tyranny that also spans the globe. It is a tyranny long ago left unchecked and long ago left to fester. It is now a tyranny that runs amok at such pace it may perhaps even destroy itself, bringing everyone over the precipice of disaster with it. However, the system born of this tyranny is one we still undoubtedly depend on in our everyday lives. Can any of us deny that intolerable acts have been committed against us, not least what has been committed in our names? If not, then now is the time to make ourselves independent. Now is the time to begin freeing ourselves from this system. The Founding Fathers did not drink British tea as they camped in the mud, froze in the snow, or marched into battle. But more importantly, before the battles as they signed their names upon their historic de declaration, they had already long boycotted it. In this way, we too must commit ourselves to boycotting and replacing this system we see as unjust. We cannot possibly be free of something we are still entirely dependent on. Should we succeed in this endeavor, then we may declare ourselves independent and enjoy and protect the freedom such independence implies. Perhaps two centuries from now, our ancestors will say, our forefathers didn't shop the Globocrats Walmart. To be sure, it will not be easy. The Founding Fathers' journey towards independence was as much a battle in many ways as the war they fought to defend it. The Founding Fathers boycotted the British Empire that so stung them with tyranny. We must identify those that deliver the sting of tyranny to us now. We must look past the politicians, follow the money, and make the connections between the injustice we see and those who are organizing and benefiting from it. Here are some lists to get started with. And the article provides links to CFR.org and ChathamHouse.org.uk. It will not be easy, and it will not happen overnight. It is up to us, each and every day, starting today, to decide how and where we spend our money, what we do with our free time, to whom we pay our attention to, and who we choose to follow. Little by little, we can regain our independence while simultaneously eroding the power and influence that has made this tyranny so grievous. What can we do? This is what we can do, and we can do it starting now. Boycott the globalists. End quote. And thus, in one masterful article, Tony Cartolucci manages to not only identify the problem, i.e. the globocrats who are really puppeteering the system that we've been placed into and who are really the ones that we are seeking to overthrow, and secondly, offered us the template of how to effect that overthrow by simply withdrawing our support from the system that is enslaving us. And once again, this is something that can only really be effectual when it is done en masse, and thus when enough people have been warned and understand and have internalized the problems that we're facing. Again, ultimately, it's actually a very simple process for overthrowing this dictatorship of the globocrats, but it's actually remarkably difficult to implement, because in order to do it, we have to want to do it. We shop in the Walmarts or the Starbucks or whatever multinational conglomerate corporations might be in your particular area each and every day, and we give our resources to the system that we are fighting against. That is insanity, and the only way to really overthrow the dictator that is oppressing us, the globocratic system, is to boycott it, to stop feeding the beast. Again, it's a very simple 
thing to understand. It's a very difficult thing to do, and I am not sitting up here on a high horse saying that I am perfectly detached from the system. Far from it. But I do recognize that the process of detaching ourselves from that system is the process of revolution in our day and age. Now, this boycott can take many different forms, and of course it applies to things that we purchase on a daily level. It also applies to the way that we use our money and where we put our money. Because, again, even something as simple as putting our money in a bank is in and of itself a political decision with political ramifications and is potentially a place where we can apply pressure to the system that's oppressing us. This is something that I had the chance to discuss recently with Ellen Brown, the author, of course, of Web of Debt at webofdebt.com, when we were discussing an article that she wrote recently about naked shorting, the suppression of the gold price, and how people can fight back against the finance capitalists. But I'd like to start today, actually, by talking about an, an article that appeared recently on, on globalresearch.ca entitled Financial Warfare, Sheared by the Shorts, How Short Sellers Fleece Investors. And I think this is an important aspect of understanding the, the, um, the stock market collapse and, and how um, asset and commodity um, prices can be pushed down, including gold and silver and things of that sort. So per perhaps just to get a, a base level understanding for the, the listeners and viewers out there, perhaps we can start by talking a little bit about the mechanics of shorting and naked shorting and how they work and how they've functioned to, to help propagate the crisis that we find ourselves in. Okay, well, you can guess what prompted me to write that article. I got fleeced. Um, gold and silver right now, particularly, are way down at a time when you would expect them to be way up. And the shares, the gold and silver shares, are way, way down. I mean, much lower than they were when, when gold and silver were much lower. In other words, there's something very fishy going on here. And so it turns out that a massive amount of short selling has gone on with the shares, which means the stocks, the, you know, gold and silver stocks, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't have to be commodities. It happens to be commodities right now, but at other times in history, it's been different things. For example, Lehman Brothers uh, was heavily, it was, uh, it was, um, the victim of a bear raid, which brought down its stock by 40% in one day, which happened to be September 11th of 2008. And that is actually what propelled it into bankruptcy, not the fact that it was undercapitalized. All those banks were undercapitalized, but this particular one was targeted for takedown, and it was taken down. So it is possible for the short sellers, the bears, or it's not clear who this is. There's a lot of rumor. I mean, it does appear that the government is attempting at the moment to take down gold and silver in order to inflate the money supply with more quantitative easing. And in other words, people will be screaming about inflation as long as we have commodities way up. But if commodities are going down, it um, gives some credibility to their argument that we're in a deflation, not an inflation. And I would agree with that, actually. We are in a deflationary period overall. If you consider um, real estate, which is much, uh, you know, a much bigger factor in the whole economy than gold and silver, real estate is way, way down. The prices are. Labor is the biggest price of or the biggest cost of anything and it's way down. The cost of labor is way down. So, in fact, overall, we are in a def def depression or deflation. And it would be a good thing if the Fed would add some, some um, 
currency to the system. I, I mean, I think that's right. But the, the plunge protection team, which is a, actually an agency set up by the government to manipulate markets, um, is out there making things look good so that the Fed can do this without getting in a lot of trouble. You know, the Fed's gotten in trouble for QE1 and QE2. There's just a whole lot of misconception about what's going on here. So anyway, whoever is doing it, there does seem to be um, an organized targeting of the gold and silver shares and, and of gold and silver too, but particularly the shares are looking really bad. So the way they do it is, uh, the way short selling works is that uh, the short sellers sell stock that they don't own. And then the deal is they're supposed to cover, like in the next three days, they're supposed to buy stock uh, to replace the stock that they just sold. And and the, what they're planning to do is to buy it at a cheaper price. And then they keep the difference between the price at which they bought it and the price at which or the price at which they sold it and the price at which they later bought it um, and but the reason this is a scam is that uh, they're actually duplicating the stock it's rather like fractional reserve lending which is a different type of scam where you're duplicating the deposits of the depositors but in this case what's happening is the the short seller is borrowing stock from shareholders who have no intention of wanting this stock to go down, they want the stock to go up. These are the longs, the people who bought the stock because they believe in the company, they want to see it grow, it's, a, it's an investment for them. Their stock is being um, borrowed and sold into the market to bring down the price of the stock that they have invested in. So you might wonder why would anybody lend their, their shares for this purpose, well, they don't. Most people don't know that they've lent the shares. Most um, brokerages, whether they're whether they're the primary, the main, the big brokers, or whether they're discount brokers, they usually set you up in a margin account. Whether you don't ask for this, and they don't tell you, but a margin account is where you're allowed to borrow against your stock. And most people don't borrow against their stock. It's a very risky thing to do. They don't even know that they could do this. Um, but the broker does it because the rule is that if it's a margin account, then they are allowed to lend this the stock to short sellers. And the interest they get is quite can be quite high, particularly on something like um, commodity stocks right now because they're a bit scarce and hard to get a hold of. So it can go up to like 30% on the interest. And this is big bucks that the brokers are making. The shareholder whose stock is being lent isn't getting a penny of that and the shareholder is getting killed because his stock is going down. Another downside of this whole practice is that um, the, the short seller gets to vote the stock. So sometimes these bear raids, these uh, um, leverage buyouts that the short sellers come in and uh, borrow the stock specifically so they can vote because they want to vote for the company to go with the, with the buyout. And, and since most people don't take the time to vote their shares, I, I'm guilty of that myself, it is sort of a nuisance, um, then, the, then the interested people, the, um, the short sellers, can, can actually swing the vote in a way that is unfavorable to the to the real owners of the stock. So that's your basic bear raid and the uh, Great Depression was one long bear raid. It was like four years 
of wave after wave after wave of short selling, bringing the, whenever the market would try to get back up, there would just be another wave of attack to bring it back down. So that's probably where we are again. Uh, it, that's exactly right. And I think the important thing to understand in that is that what, what a lot of people who aren't involved in those types of operations don't realize is that a lot of people make money when the when the economy is plunging or when the markets are going down because they're positioned to do so. And uh, and that was exposed uh, in quite a blatant and quite a, a remarkable fashion recently on BBC News with a uh, now viral video of a, a trader who, who they were interviewing who was talking about how he dreams of recessions because because he's positioned to make money from them. So he wants the, the, the the economy to tank for all intents and purposes. And I, I think it sets up a situation where uh, it's, it's often been called the vultures of finance capitalism who, who swoop in and, and deliberately try to take down uh, stocks or take, take down, down commodities. And whereas, of course, the, the average person is, is interested in building up the economy and, and making, making all of the, uh, the boats float with rising prices and rising, rising uh, uh, asset values. But uh, unfortunately, there are people who actually profit on destruction. So, so I guess the question is are we are we seeing the creation of this type of system where these finance capital vultures are are really licking their chops waiting for these types of uh, um, cataclysmic situations so that they can actually profit from them we are and there there are ways that they could get control of that but because they are in control of government as well, that we can't get the regulations changed. That besides the uh, short sellers, they're the high-frequency pro- program traders who are skimming off of all the trades. That they, they make these millions of shares a second, or millions of trades a second, um, with with their computer programs. And this is all done after hours. It's not even when the stock market's open. Um, and that could be stopped with a little Tobin tax, which is a you know a tax on on trades. But there's a, there's it would have to be a global tax pretty much for it to work because if one country had it and another country didn't have it, oops, I'm, I guess I disagree with myself on that because I think England actually has it or the UK has it, and it hasn't hurt the UK apparently. I mean they're obviously big still big stock market players. Um, anyway, the, it's very difficult to get these things passed. There's always some bogus reason why why they don't want to do it, but it's it's killing the market and it's killing it's making the whole thing unfair. It's not just that it's unfair to the shareholders, but it's destroying these companies. Companies are being eaten from within. Companies that well even like General Motors, I understand, was brought down pretty much by by that sort of thing. That's right. And and I think you, you touch on a key point there, because when we talk about regulations or taxes or that type of thing to try to restrain this action, of course, we are relying on, on the idea that the people who would be putting in those regulations would be on our side and not the side of the, the finance uh, vultures. And I think you note at the bottom of your, your article um, that, that that is really something of a pipe dream uh, at this point. And, and I'll just quote from the article, what can be done to halt this very destructive practice? Ideally, federal regulators would step in with some rules, but as Jim Puplava of FinancialSense.com observes, the regulators seem to be in the pockets of the brokers and are inclined to look the other way. Lawsuits can have an effect, but they take money and time. 
And then what what uh, what you end up suggesting is that uh, that people need to take collective action to move away from the these types of margin accounts and and to start a grassroots movement to to move the money away from these Wall Street finance capital firms that are profiting from destruction. And to me, that seems like a much more effective solution than asking regulators to to come in and regulate the people that are basically buying and paying for their congressional seats and, and all sorts of that type of shenanigans that we know goes on. Uh, so perhaps you can speak to the, the concept of collective action. Yeah, uh, that's where we are in history. I mean, look at this, uh, this um, move on Wall Street to, to, I've forgotten the word, but anyway, that, you, you know, they're, what's the word for on Wall Street that they're doing? Oh, Occupy Wall Street. Right. Occupy Wall Street. Um, so th- that started as a, sm- I mean, the first time they tried it, I think there were four people that actually, that actually were committed to stay. And then it just grew and grew and grew as, because largely because of the internet and, and you have your, um, Arab spring movements that are, that have sort of prompted people around the world to do collective action. And it's something you can do through the internet. Um, hopefully we'll continue to have those those lines of communication. But anyway, it is a time when we had where the government is in control of the wrong side. And it's a legal means just or I shouldn't say legal, we we're not doing anything illegal, but um political means are just very hard to to work these days. So we we may just ha- have a lot of protest movements. I'm I'm not really in favor of taking to the streets because it's it, it's you're dealing with um, it used to just be mace and now it's uh, tasers and really dangerous things. Plus they they don't televise it. I mean you can you can be out there putting your life on the line and nobody even notices. Um, but there are other ways. Well, for instance, here, where where if many people understood that their stock was being used against them and told their brokers that they did not want margin accounts, they want a regular account, it would obviously would take a lot of people to have an effect. But if everybody understood that and everybody did it, it's rather like the move your money movement, um, it could have an effect. So that's just what we need to do is is relay the information so everybody understands what the what the deal is here. You don't necessarily have to go out in the street and risk your life. You can just call your broker and set things right. Absolutely, the 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 idea of going out on on Wall Street and, and trying to occupy it. I mean, I I, I don't want to dismiss that or, or poo poo it. I think it's important that people are getting involved and getting active in these types of things. But but you're right. I mean, when we're facing a police state that's equipped with all of these LRADs and tasers and all of this new technology for suppressing dissent, I mean, I think the the system is very much prepared for that type of action. But what they can't really control is our minds and our our free will to go and take our money and put it where where it will actually have a, a better effect and, and actually hopefully change society for the better. Um, and, and again, so it's, it's at the end of the day, uh, where do you shop and where do you put your money and where do you invest and how do you invest is, is really the key. So I think that's, uh, that's very important things to, to keep in mind. Once again, the concept of revolution is a multifaceted one, and I don't pretend to have covered all of the aspects of that in this episode, but I certainly hope that we have at least opened the door on the conversation so that we can begin moving forward together in meaningful and productive ways and not be led down blind alleys by people of whatever intent bearing false templates of revolution.
And as we are in the midst of this economic rebellion, which seems to be taking shape in North America, I'll leave you today with an excellent video put together by Luke Rudkowski of We Are Change New York, who was recently talking to some of the people on the street in the Occupy Wall Street protests and asking them to describe why they are there in one word. A very interesting endeavor. And the video ends with a lyrical tour de force by Immortal Technique. So we'll leave it there for now, but rest assured this conversation will continue on this podcast in the future. That's it for this week. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me again next week for another edition of the Corbett Report. This is Lugardowski, week two, four o'clock in the morning here at Occupy Wall Street here at Liberty Park. Many things have gone down this week, many arrests, many beatdowns by the police, but there's still hundreds of people out here putting their bodies on the line for their beliefs. And I always wanted to ask them a simple question. All right, my one question, you can only reply with one word. Why are you out here? That's really hard. Think about it. Take your time. Take time. Why am I here? One word. I'm going to take an hour, just so you know. Take your time. <laughs> America. Robbed. Veteran. Outrage. Change. Community. Change. Self. Change. Society. With. Peace. Equality. Defiance. Community. And. Hope. Future. Life. With. Freedom. Unity. Principle. Science. Change. And. Accountability. Is. Revolution. 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 Killed by the feds for those who died hard in the streets, soaking in red and die slow asleep in a dream, choking in bed. Is it toast to the dead for my enemies that are gone? I'm not a coward, so celebrate and that would be wrong. I pray to God that your soul will come back again so I can see you in the next life and finish it then. A toast to the dead for criminals burning in hell. I wonder how many presidents are burning as well. Emperors, popes, senators, generals, amputees feeling lucky until they see the vegetables. A toast to the dead for those who are forgotten, written out of history by the corrupt and rotten black saints whitewashed during la reconquista thousands of indios spaniards used to conquer the incas fuck a moment of silence i need a moment of violence like the 19th century caribbean islands long live those who came before that paved the way for me the warriors and scientists that came before slavery and if that last lyric was predictable take that clairvoyance and apply it to your life in the physical presumptuous half-hearted homunculus self-destruction is the power without knowing what the function is peace We are change.